Truly Deadly. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated by Ella Lynch. Prologue. 16 and my life was basically over. And no, I'm not being dramatic. I kept the accelerator planted to the floor, doing over a hundred, with the grill of a Range Rover twisted in a tangle of metal to the rear bumper of the ambulance, driven by a grim-faced bitch doing her best to run us both off the road. Two police cars tried their best to box us in and slow us down. A sniper leaned out of a black helicopter, keeping pace on the other side of the motorway, taking pot shots at my head. Meanwhile, the old man strapped down in the back of the ambulance was laying down super gabber beats through a heart monitor, while one of the guys from the grab team, kill squad, whoever they were, lolled forward in the passenger seat, long strands of gloopy blood dripping slowly from his mashed-in face. I didn't know who was after me or why they thought I was worth all this effort, other than I'd seen something I really shouldn't. It can't have been because of anything I actually knew, because I knew less than squat. All I did know for sure was that if I slowed down and stopped, I was dead. And if the traffic got any thicker as we sped up the bridge running dangerously high over the deep and dirty Manchester ship canal, yep, I was pretty much worm food. Sprinkle in a complete lack of driving lessons and my long, illustrious history of blacking out at all the wrong moments and you've got the perfect recipe for underpant brownies. Of course, a few weeks ago, it was all so different. Still shit, but a different kind, different shade, different stink. Rainbows and unicorns compared to this. Then, almost overnight, everything changed. I changed. Things got really weird and totally out of hand. And now, you've stepped right into the middle of my nightmare and, like me, you're probably wondering what in God's gonads is going on. So, how does a girl get herself in a pickle like this? Well, before I catch a bullet, crash off the road or collapse at the wheel, let's rewind a little. It all started with a change of heart. Chapter 1. The Cut First, I should really introduce myself. My name is Lorna Walker, and I had two choices. A. Stick to the meds and die within the year. B. Have the surgery and risk dying during the op. If neither of those got me, the Death Squeeze 2000, a.k.a. Auntie Claire, would surely hug the life out of me in the meantime. I'd gone for option B, of course. And there I lay, on the operating table, trembling so much that the whole team had to hold me still while the anaesthetist stuck me with a needle. I stared at the circular bone saw, the bright theatre lights dancing off the blade. Please don't slip and chop my nipples off. The head surgeon, a lanky, grey-haired man with an accent posher than the Queen's, asked his hairy-armed assistant how long the organ had been on ice. Four hours, Armhair said. DOA came in carrying a bullet and a donor card. The anaesthetist smiled down at me through pretty Indian eyes. Lucky you, she said, prepping me for the big sleep. 
They usually didn't give you the anaesthetic on the operating table, but they'd had to fly in the new heart against the clock, so there was no time to deliver it in another room, where I couldn't see all those scary surgical tools. My consultant, Dr Jennings, had already laid out the realities of the surgery, subtle as a double-D boob job. You'll have a scar, quite a prominent one, extending from the centre of your collarbone to the sternum, the bony bit between your breasts. That's assuming you survive the surgery, Dr J had said, and your body doesn't reject the donor's organ. You'll be on immunosuppressants for the rest of your natural life. Was there such a thing as an unnatural life? When this one was over, did they turn you into a robot sex dancer? This was the kind of pointless random shit that ravaged my mind in the days and weeks I spent hanging around hospital wards with my life on hold. In fact, I'd started writing it all down in a journal called Thoughts and Shit. Kind of a posthumous thing in case I didn't make it. A sign I'd been here. That my 16 years on Earth had counted for something. It would need a good safety edit, of course, especially the bit about starting my own penis museum. As the surgeons compared notes on golf swings, the anaesthetist gave me the gas. I felt the weak, jerky rhythm of my heart. Did it know what was in store? Was it saying, one last goodbye? Suddenly I felt really sad for my heart. I didn't want it to die. Weird when you think about it. Imagine waiting two years for the phone call, wondering if you'd ever get to use that transplant bag, packed and ready to rock in the bottom of the wardrobe. Then, when you finally get what you want, all you feel is sad. Someone had to die for me to live. And three people in the UK died every year waiting for an organ. Why couldn't I just be happy and grateful? Before I could spin through it any more, the drugs kicked in and I felt lightheaded, my vision beginning to split and blur. Then I felt nothing at all. Chapter 2 Operations I lay belly down on a dune overlooking a desert highway. Early morning, the sun rising, already oven hot. What the hell was I doing here? Scanning the long straight road through the crosshairs of a rifle, I guessed it wasn't sightseeing. Oh no, I thought. The operation had been a con all along. They turned me into a drone soldier instead, a drone soldier with big, dry man hands. I certainly wasn't the one in control of the decisions, but I'll use the royal I and my because every action felt like my own. I ran the rifle sighting over to my far left, where a procession of liquid cars turned solid, breaking the heat haze. A black Merc limo rode in the centre, a pair of Range Rovers either side. The limo had a couple of small red, green and white flags stuck on the front, flapping in the wind. The convoy moved fast and tight. Leaving a finger on the rifle trigger, I took out a push-button phone. Some ancient piece of crap. There was a number punched in, ready to dial. I held a finger over the call button and tracked the movement of the cars again through the crosshairs. The train of cars passed below my position. I pulled my head away from the rifle and hit call. Before you could say boom shakalaka, the road beneath the lead Range Rover erupted in an almighty crack and blast, shaking some of the sand loose on the dune, flipping the vehicle up and back onto the one behind. A split second later, the same deal with the two at the rear. Big explosion, giant flaming wreck. 
black smoke plumed into the air, the limo caught in a fireball sandwich. It tried pulling out around the blaze. I trained the rifle on the near side front window and let off a single shot. It punched a hole in the tinted window and revealed a driver slumped over the steering wheel, brain-spat patterns all over the dash. Oh, my God. I hated gory stuff. I wanted to vom. The limo rolled to a stop, burning bodies spilling out of the Range Rovers and collapsing on the road. I fixed the crosshairs on the rear of the limo and waited. I flexed a sun-cracked finger around the trigger and let out a deep breath. The rear door of the limo opened and an Arab bodyguard in a black suit stuck his head out, yelling into his phone. It only took a second to line up the shot. One tiny squeeze of the finger and his head popped right off. Ugh, yuck. This was horrible. Seriously, make it stop. Another bodyguard climbed out of the far side of the car, staying low. He unleashed a hellstorm of machine gun fire in my direction, bullets pounding into the dune just a few feet below me. The guy ducked back down behind the rear of the car, before rising to return fire again. I got him in the neck, the shot tearing his throat apart, blood spraying left and right. I spotted an older man in military uniform running scared into the vast flat desert over the opposite side of the road. I pulled the rifle apart and slid back down the dune to a beige 4x4 dusted in sand. I threw the rifle bag in the passenger seat and cranked up the engine. The aircon kicked in, full blast. Ice cool heaven. I took off down the dune and across the road in front of the burning convoy. The man in uniform was old and covered in war medals, a trimmed white beard standing out against his dark skin. I cut in front of him and slammed on the brakes, jumped out of the 4x4 with a handgun by my side. The old man stopped running. He knew the game was up. Just to do it, he said in Arabic. So what, I speak Arabic now? I raised my gun and fired, but there was no bullet, just a dart with a fluffy pink tail that stuck in his neck. He dropped to his knees, flopping mush first in the sand. Time jumped ahead, the sun high in the sky cooking everything in sight. Uniformed dude lay on his side in the back, hands tied with plastic cuffs and a black hood over his head. He groaned as he came to. The dash on the 4x4 rattled on the bumpy roads. The landscape was an endless yellow sea with a long stick of empty licorice tarmac running through it. A far cry from the industrial wasteland I called home. Grotty grey council estates and boarded up shops on the outskirts of Manchester where regeneration didn't stretch and people with money didn't stray. I rumbled along for a few minutes, alone, until I noticed a tiny speck in my side mirror, gaining fast. Now there were two of them, growing bigger and bigger until it was obvious they were chasing me down. One hand tightened around the wheel while the other reached in the rifle bag and pulled out a handgun. A real one this time. Heavier. I steered with my knees while I locked and loaded. The two specks turned out to be a pair of shitty, dirty, white Toyota pickups keeping pace either side of me. Arab guys inside, signalling to pull over. Army? Police? Worse? We came to a stop just off the road. I tucked the gun in the waist of my combats. My drone body felt awfully calm considering... There were five men in total. 
They held up scary-looking machine guns, screaming at me to put my hands up and get out slowly. I did as they screamed, walking forward a few metres and dropping to my knees. I tucked my hands behind my head, my phone concealed within them. They trained their weapons on me while a man who appeared to be the leader performed a search. He relieved me of my weapon, asking me what I was doing and where I was going. Another guy wandered round to the back of the 4 by 4 peering through the dirty windows. He's here, he said, alive. Who are you? the leader asked me. I said nothing. He slammed the butt of his rifle in my stomach. Jesus, the pain. Who do you work for? He's not going to talk. Let's get rid of him, one of the men said. Shouldn't we take him back for interrogation? asked another. What's wrong? said the leader. Don't you want to make major? The men hurried themselves into a line, clearly excited by the thought of a promotion. And I thought it was my heart condition that was going to be the death of me. After all this, it would be an AK-47 firing squad. I wanted to tell them it had all been a big misunderstanding. I'd been turned into a super soldier by secret army surgeons. But drone soldier Lorna didn't like to talk. She preferred to text. While my captors were busy preparing their weapons and I was busy pooping my mind pants, those clever man-hands of mine were texting away on my push-button phone. I was so distracted by all the fear and facial hair that I hadn't noticed until my right index finger pushed the last button. I expected another roadside bomb to go off somewhere, but nothing. Through squinting eyes, all I could see were the silhouette figures of the men and... In the distance, a small black dot against a dazzling sky. It's the end of the road for you, friend, the leader said to me. Rifles clicked, fingers twitched, eyes narrowed behind sights. Ready, said the leader. Aim. I braced myself for an impact that never came. The instant the leader said fire, the entire firing squad was cut in half by a blink-and-miss rattle of bullets the size of Coke bottles, making Swiss cheese of their trucks in the process. A grey-black drone flashed by low overhead, engines like thunder. It turned and performed a flyby before melting back into the sun, leaving nothing but the sound of the wind. Five lives snuffed out faster than you can clap your hands. Vultures already circling high over the body parts and sand soaking up the blood. I got back to my feet and checked my phone. A text from me that said, Skybird. A text back saying, Skybird confirmed. I walked round to the back of the 4 by 4 re-hooded my still drowsy captive, climbed back behind the wheel and continued on my way. Chapter 3. Side Effects Back in breezy old Manchester of England, I woke up slowly in intensive care. My eyes sticky, the world just shapes and muffled sounds. Someone held my hand, talking. When I eventually came round properly... The hospital room was dead, except for my Darth Vader click-and-breathe ventilator and the gentle beep of the heart monitor. Suddenly it hit me. That was my heartbeat, and it was beeping steadily. I was alive. I felt like deep-fried shit balls, but I was alive. Auntie Claire was snoozing in a chair by the bed. A nurse was checking my vitals. She smiled and nudged Auntie Claire awake. 
Auntie Claire gasped in delight, seizing my hand. Hey, Lornie! It was all too much. I couldn't muster a single word, yet the rogue tear rolling down my left cheek said it all. A few days later, they took me off the ventilator and the head surgeon stopped by to debrief. Your surgery went well, he said with a big grin. No complications and so far, zero signs of rejection. Thank you, I said, for everything. You've no idea how... He waved it away. All part of the service. Now, since you're on the mend, there are a few things I need to run through with you. First, you've had major heart surgery, so you need to act appropriately. We're going to keep you on fluids the next few days, then we'll start to get you back on your feet. The number one rule is to take it slow. Your new heart has perfect function, but you could still suffer from blackouts if you overdo it. Some patients are too weak to walk at first. Some get frustrated because they're not allowed to do more. But just do what the nurses tell you, OK? Donor organs like yours are precious, so take care of it. I nodded and smiled, then asked how long I'd be in there. Two to three weeks, depending. But you're doing really well, and you've got a strong, healthy heart in you. I held it in my hands. It's one of the best I've seen. He checked his watch and said he'd see me before I left the ward. What's the number one rule? he asked on his way out. Take it slow, I said. I looked over to the bedside table, where a leaflet chirped, Hey, I've had a heart transplant. What next? The first time I found out I'd made the waiting list for an op, Dr J had warned me about the rehab and medication. They'll decrease the likelihood that your body will reject the foreign tissue, but obviously there are some risks, he'd said. Infections, illness, fatigue, cancer. Oh, fab, I thought. The C word. I wanted to stick my fingers in my ears and sing la la la, but the hard facts kept coming like spots and tsunamis. Don't worry, he'd said, creaking forward and touching me awkwardly on the arm. Donors can be difficult to find, so you don't have to think about any of that yet. Yep, he'd not quite got the hang of this bedside manner thing, had he? Made me wonder what he was like with Mrs J. You're sagging horribly, dear, but so are most women your age. Don't be unduly alarmed. I looked down at the mega dressing running down the centre of my chest. I was definitely in the wanting-to-go-fast camp. I wanted to run and jump and dance and roller disco, but that would have to wait. First, I had to contend with the warm plate of pig slop being plonked in front of me for dinner. You think the chicken surprise is bad in hospital? Try being a veggie. There's bogey risotto, cardboard tofu, burnt twig stir-fry, or my personal fave, sick on a plate. I know I was an ungrateful bitch. I was lucky to still be alive and gagging. And there were millions of starving children who'd gladly scrap over the cabbage medley. But really, would it have killed them to cut the roots off the carrots? Oh, what I would have given for one of Auntie Claire's volcanic cheese toasties. She'd make them for me every time I was put on standby for an organ, only to be let down. I'd sit there in the small, dated kitchen you found in two-bed terraces like ours, burning my chin on the melted cheddar oozing out of the toastie, a small plastic Jesus hanging off a cross on the wall in a white pair of budgie smugglers. Like always, he seemed to carry a smug look that said, Ha ha, stupid cow. Plastic Jesus loved that shit. Don't worry, love, Auntie Claire always said in her harmless religious nut way. God has a plan for us all. Yeah, 
That's what I was worried about. His plan for me was a dodgy ticker and an early bath. The problem with my old heart had been valvular. It meant I had a bad flap, as Auntie Claire called it. The flap didn't open and close like everyone else's. My heart struggled to pump blood around my body properly, which meant I got tired easily. I found it tough to concentrate. And Zumba was a big fat nada. I was also prone to blackouts. My body loved nothing more than a good faint. In the middle of class, the shopping mall, on the bus, at the dinner table, the hairdressers, you name the floor, I've woken up on it. It's the circle of concern I dreaded the most, especially if there was a hot boy on the scene. Nothing said pathetic like losing your shit in the middle of Subway. There's a video of that one on YouTube. Three minutes of me flat on my back, covered in shame and shredded lettuce. Worst of all, the shitty blood flow gave me cankles and a little pot belly, despite what people said. Oh no, Lorna, you've just got big ankle bones. See, bits I hate most about me and thoughts and shit. I wasn't born with the bad flap. It sort of just arrived out of the blue about four years ago. The doctors ran all kinds of tests and turned me into a walking voodoo doll before they finally put two and two together and came up with a nightmare. Auntie Claire said I was dying of a broken heart ever since Dad ate that darn pesky shotgun and Mum skipped off to a religious supercult in Texas. File under things we don't talk about at the dinner table. Now, with a new heart in my chest, I couldn't wait to start living. Okay, so I felt like death on toast. The dressing on my chest was worryingly huge and every cell of my body hurt like I'd been stomped on by a T-Rex. Yet, somehow... I felt better than ever. My heart was beating strong and steady, with no more skipping or buffering. My lungs were sucking in more life, with no more shortness of breath. I was even able to hold my concentration beyond a couple of minutes. All flaps were go. By day five, it was time to put feet to floor and take a walk to the bathroom. I wiggled my toes inside my favourite dog face slippers, fluffy, warm and familiar. Jocelyn, the short mumsy nurse, who was my designated pee facilitator, steadied me as I rose gingerly. After a bit of swaying, I was baby-stepping it down the corridor. By Jove! I was walking! In my head, I sang to the tune of Let It Go from Frozen. I can walk, I can walk, I can walk, I can walk, I can walk! Suddenly, I was cut off mid-song. Who the fuck was that red moon marshmallow face staring back at me in the mirror? It was the anti-rejection drugs they'd pumped into me like petrol into a car. I'd been warned about it, but it was still a shock. Jocelyn stroked my back. Your face will go down, sweetie. My mind raced through the side effects of the immunosuppressants, like a game show voiceover reeling off a conveyor belt of booby prizes. Decrease in muscle function, weak bones, weight gain, Crohn's disease, flaky skin, acne, facial hair, going bald. Was greasy tramp hair that sticks to your forehead part of the deal? Let's get you a nice hot shower, said Jocelyn, as if reading my horrified little mind. At least if my hair was shiny and clean, I could cover part of my face and make it look thinner. I tried to block out the image of my future self. A beard, a broken arm, bingo wings, puff pastry pizza face, a shiny bald head, a gam hand and a crooked walk. These were just potentials, after all. They weren't necessarily going to happen. 
Sure, Lorna, keep telling yourself that, my inner devil kept saying in her bored, sarcastic drawl. Everyone's going to puke through their eyeballs when they get a load of you. You'll never get a boyfriend, and even if you do, it's doubtful he'll love you. He'll probably think of one of his friends while he's doing you. Jocelyn helped me take a shower without getting the dressing wet. I lingered in the warm water, letting it reinvigorate my aching bones. She stood with her back to me while I toweled off. I asked her about the donor. Obviously, I can't thank him or anything, I said, but I'd like to thank his family and send them my sympathy. I'm sorry, sweetie, she said. I'm afraid we couldn't track down his family. No one knows who he was except for the name on the donor card. It's all he had in his wallet. All I know is, he arrived in a London A&E. They put the heart on ice and flew it up. She lowered her voice conspiratorially. The odd thing is, his body went missing immediately after the organ was removed. They didn't have time to remove the other donated parts. Then again, hospitals are big places. Things go missing all the time. When I told Auntie Claire that night, she put it down to a miracle. A gift from God. See, she said, I told you he was watching. What, an immaculate corpse? Unless God had a hitman in the sky, taking out random strangers and dumping them outside A&E. I doubted it. Maybe Plastic Jesus had connections, I thought, as I drifted off, hair carefully and futilely arranged over my planet-sized face. Chapter 4. Cleaver. I surveyed the scene. A dim, unwelcoming place. An uneven dirt floor, lumpy stone walls and a wonky low-hanging ceiling. The military man in uniform sat on a thin metal chair in the middle of the empty room, head lolling forward under the hood. I walked out of the cool of the abandoned house and into the blazing white heat of the desert. A couple of mean-looking guys with sun-ruddied faces stood guard in wrapped shades either side of the front door. Dressed like locals, but not fooling anyone. A long snake of dust made its way towards us across the cracked, sun-bleached road, growing into a pair of white SUVs. A team of heavies piled out, looking like special forces in desert fatigues. They marched forward in tandem, armed to the eyeballs. One guy walked out in front, a short, wiry man with close black hair and velociraptor features. He wore everyday clothes khaki chinos, a pale blue shirt and some naff brown leisure trainers. Morning, morning, he chirped in a placeless British accent, a takeaway coffee in one hand, a pastry in the other. We all filed back into the house. While the boss sipped on his coffee and munched loudly on his pastry, one of the heavies scraped another chair across the concrete floor until it faced my abductee. One of his teammates placed a military-issue laptop on the chair and opened it up. The green webcam light was on. Coffee and Danish finished his breakfast and pulled the hood off the captive man. Good morning, Sultan. Nathan. Nathan Moore. Pleasant journey? he asked in English. What is the meaning of this? the Sultan replied, drowsiness replaced by anger. I will have all your heads, he continued, eyes around the room. All of you. Nathan laughed, patted him on the shoulder and hit a key on the laptop. The silhouette of a thick-set man appeared on the other end of a video call. Sultan, he said in a deep, distorted voice. My apologies for interrupting your day. 
Not even man enough to show your face, said the sultan. Oh, come now, don't look so surprised, Shadowman said. You're not the importance of anonymity in our organization. What do you want? asked the sultan. What I want is for you to honor our agreement, Shadowman said. You do remember promising to sign on that little dotted line, the one that said signature. The treaty, yes, the sultan said. I've decided to abstain. Why ever so? asked Shadowman. The sultan gestured as if holding the universe in his hands. God created this, he said. Everything, everyone. Who are we to undo his work? Well, that is disappointing, said Shadow Man. I wish you would reconsider. Think of your wives and all those children, said Nathan. I am thinking of them. I will not dishonour my faith, my country or my family. Not any more than I already have. He held his head up straight and proud. Do as you will. Very well, Sultan, Shadow Man said. There's always another willing committee member. Mr Moore? Nathan closed the laptop and signalled his henchmen. They got busy setting up a video camera on a tripod. Look, Sultan, Nathan said, bending over him with his hands on his knees. I'm a nice guy, so I'll give you one last chance. Please sign the agreement. If you don't, someone else will. The Sultan looked dead ahead at the wall, refusing Nathan the courtesy of eye contact. I know where I'm going, he said, and I know where you're all going too. Judgment awaits us all. Ooh, Nathan said, mock shivering, his team laughing. You're up, he said to me with a slap on the arm. The Sultan was hoisted out of the chair and dragged by the armpits in front of the camera. Faces were concealed beneath headscarves and shades. I hung mine around my face too, itchy and musty. One of the men brought out something long and flat wrapped in a white cloth. He held it on flat palms while another one unwrapped the object inside and offered it to me. Holy shit, a huge brutal meat cleaver. My eyes lingered on the Sultan, already deep in prayer. Well, come on then, Nathan said to me. Chop, chop. I took hold of the cleaver, heavy and razor sharp. Okay, wake up, Lorna, wake up now. I sighed in resignation and stepped into position behind the Sultan, who was forced to kneel on the floor and injected with a sedative. His head hung low, exposing his deep, brown, perspiring neck. Nathan stood beside me and addressed the camera in fluent Arabic. He talked about striking at the heart of capitalism, how the Sultan, like so many Middle Eastern leaders, had colluded with Western enemies, sold the soul of his nation and brought disgrace on his people. How an example must be made. Judgment awaits us all, he said, stealing the Sultan's line. He nodded at me and stepped aside. I lined the blade up over the Sultan's neck. I wanted to stop my right hand. I wanted to scream but I had zero control. Again, I was just a passenger in a sick nightmare that my eyes were glued open to. I raised the cleaver and in one swift, smooth arc brought it down towards the top of the Sultan's neck, 
It sliced through clean, like chopping through a large ham. His head rolled clean off his shoulders onto the floor with a wet thud, blood gushing out through the base of the skull. Two birds, one head, Nathan said with a smirk as soon as the camera was turned off. The Sultan's face stared blankly up at me as I wiped off the end of the cleaver with the cloth it came in. Hashtag horrific. Hashtag mind puke. This has been Truly Deadly. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated by Ella Lynch. <laughs>